Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Is it normal to feel really horny? Is it normal for your ankles to swell up? Is it normal to be incredibly out of breath? Is it normal that my nipples hurt so much? Is it normal to be obsessed with bechamel sauce? Hello and welcome to Is It Normal? The Pregnancy Podcast with me, Jessie Ware. This podcast has followed my pregnancy journey and hopefully helped you understand some of your symptoms and what's normal and what's not normal. Basically, what we've learned from this podcast is that everything is rather normal, but just everyone experiences pregnancy and birth in a bit of a different way. We've had amazing help from brilliant experts that have hopefully reassured you, empowered you and informed you about all aspects of pregnancy and giving birth. And it's, well, that dreaded day, due day. Well, it's not a dreaded day. It's just this kind of weird day called week 40 due date it could come today could have already come uh, could come in two weeks who knows uh, it's the waiting game now um, but we are definitely going to have a baby hopefully in our hands in the next couple of weeks um, and I'm joined by our regular obstetrician and gynecologist um, consultant Jess McMicking to talk about the act of giving birth thank you for joining me Jess McMicking for week 40 due date for some that won't come for a few weeks. I am not having my baby yet and it is, you know, week 40 and I expect, I'm trying to be very calm about this because they've never come in the first week of the due date and so I'm just trying to be zen and calm about it but it's a waiting game and it's highly stressful. So is this normal, Jess McMicking, to feel really stressed as soon as you hit that four? If By the way, if anybody is listening who has ever sent a text congratulating somebody that it's their due date never do that again it will rile a pregnant woman like to the point where she will spit feathers and blood and hate you for the rest of like the until she has that baby yeah Jess so waiting game how can we uh, manage this stress I'm not stressed I'm chilled out I know my baby will come when my baby wants to come oh it's a very stressful game I think it's funny I've had a few friends lately where you see where they've been active on whatsapp and you're like oh they're in labor they're in labor but not so (laughs) um how do you deal with the waiting game yeah it's that very exciting time where it it sort of drags on a little bit and no matter what you do or you try and busy your mind, it's just unpredictable. You know, unfortunately, we don't have that crystal ball. There's many ways that you can, um, I guess, deal with the waiting game. And I think we spoke a little bit, um, bit about these in previous episodes where there's things that you can do to help your body get into labor. 
But in terms of the waiting game, I think, and this is my theory, is just continue to make plans. Um, you know, if you're sitting around and not necessarily doing anything, I think, you know, that baby is going to be a little bit stubborn, play on your mind a lot more. But if you, you know, go out and watch the football or go out and have a dinner, um, you know, make that appointment for next week, you know, of course that baby's going to come on that date that, that, <laughs> that you're guaranteed to have to cancel your plans. Mm. Um, so that's probably my biggest advice. And I think that works quite well from uh, getting you relaxed and calm about things, but also, you know, making this baby work around you. Yeah. <laughs> I, I like that. And as somebody once said to me that their husband, um, I've never heard of this happen ever again, but in one instance, their husband had set up different lovely things for them to do the week of the baby's due date. So one was like, get a pedicure. One was like, go oh, get a pregnancy mask. I mean, this husband is like husband of the year, birth partner of the year. Um <laughs> And so I quite liked that. And I thought that that was a really nice idea. Um, I've got a few restaurant reservations in that I'm hoping I'll just not be able to turn up to. Or you'll get to know the restaurant people really well. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. maybe you'll just get to know them really, really well. Um, So once you get into that week 40 plus however many days, when do you feel like it gets really risky for somebody to not give birth? Yeah, so I think the the biggest risk that we're all worried about and is a little bit like the elephant in the room is that you're worried that that baby at some stage will decide that it can no longer you know, live healthily um, within your womb or your uterus and that placenta might give way. And obviously we're talking about the risk of stillbirth. Now we know that there is a portion of women where that risk of stillbirth is higher at say 40 weeks versus 41 weeks versus 42 weeks um, versus, you know, say another woman who might be sitting beside you. And obviously we're sort of looking at things such as maternal age, those women who might have an underlying medical illness such as diabetes, those sorts of things that really influence that risk of stillbirth from term from 37 weeks um from 40 weeks you know babies are still healthy and I think you know if we knew a baby was unsafe at 40 weeks then we would have a blanket rule that actually you know all women must be induced or deliver their baby in their 40th week so we do have that buffer where you know in some hospitals um or institutes women are allowed to go up to 41 possibly, you know, 40 plus 10 days or even up to 42 weeks. And obviously this is a conversation that you would have with your midwife or your obstetrician and get guided by their assessment of your pregnancy story and what they actually feel are your risks and your benefits of, uh, I guess, setting that sort of timeline um, or deadline in your pregnancy. I guess I'm lucky to have had two births that have started without induction I mean, I've had plenty of sweeps, but I don't know if they work for me. But like, I did get to the point where I had to negotiate with my, and I, I'm sure the midwives and the health professionals and obstetricians hate parents that are like this, but I did negotiate. I was 40 weeks plus 13 days. So at the strike of uh, midnight, I was going to turn into a high risk category. I was low risk patient. And so we went in in the morning And she said, we're going to break your waters. And I just kind of freaked out and negotiated coming back that afternoon. And she kind of rolled her eyes, but bless her, she she did let me. Um, Because once I was going to get my waters broken, that was it. I was going to be in there and we weren't prepared. We hadn't brought the hospital bag. We thought we were just going to have a chat with them and maybe get like the gel. But apparently I was too dilated. And I I was sad because I thought I was supposed to be having a home birth. But then 
I, I walked home and labour started. So now that's not going to happen for everybody. And that was probably quite lucky. And I negotiated those extra hours. And those extra hours can be like the change, can't they? Yeah, no, I, I actually had a friend really recently that there wasn't a bed. So she got sent home and things happened that night. So it, it, it is bizarre. You know, I guess it's like that whole, um, not karma necessarily, but it's that baby sort of, you know, whether it's got this sixth sense um, where things can happen when there is some sort of time frame that we're aiming towards and whether it happens or not for a reason, you know, it's, it's bizarre, but it can definitely mm. happen like that. How, how much do you think it's a mental game with the pregnant person? Or do you think that that doesn't really factor into it? Or do you think that idea of like relinquishing control, accepting what will be will be can kind of help things? I mean, it's it, if you had the answer, the perfect answer for this, Jess, you'd be a millionaire, I think. So um. <laughs> <laughs> I certainly would. I'd build my own hospital. Um, I think that everyone or every woman approaching this is very different. And so there are some women who actually, they want at 30 weeks to know what their time frame is. You know, they're like, you know, book that date in. Mm. This is what I'm aiming for. This is going to help me get to the end with a positive mindset. Or there's those women that actually say, you know what, I want things to try up until the, you know, 99th hour to happen by themselves before you then say, okay, we're committing to this. And so I think, you know, what you during your pregnancy will come to realize that what makes you feel relaxed, what makes you feel safe and comfortable. And that's what you should go with. You know, I think everyone gets a choice in these matters. And obviously as a clinician or as a midwife, we're never going to let you make unsafe decisions. Um, And so what's important is what works for you? What do you feel comfortable with? Because I think the whole thing is, is obviously if you're really wanting to get into labor yourself and obviously avoid that intervention, you've got to remain relaxed. You've got to remain positive, And that's how you're going to get there. Definitely. And for some people, they may be like, I'm done. I'm 40 weeks. <laughs> I need this baby out. And I I'm want to ready. be induced. Um, I want my child to be in this year at school. <laughs> I'm ready. <laughs> is, that, is that quite it? Yeah, or star sign. Star sign's the other big one. <laughs> yes, I'm on the cusp of one or the other. Who knows? Could I have a nightmare child or a fantastically creative child or an arrogant child? Who knows? So let's talk about the rights of a parent. How much can you insist on waiting for a baby rather than being induced? Yeah, so that's that's a really good question. And I think there's obviously the two sides of the fence that always have to be explored. And that's obviously the mother and her respective partner and what your rationale is for wanting to wait. It could be really simple. It might just be like, look, you know, I really want things to happen naturally, but I'll be happy to do everything I can to try and get there. And then there's obviously the other side of the fence is, okay, well, we have to be safe. And so Whatever it is, if, say, you're declining um, a recommended, you know, intervention or induction in this circumstance, is that you must just be aware of what this benefit versus risk scenario is um, and that ensure that you've been provided all the possible information, all your questions are answered. And then, of course, you know, you're an intelligent being, so you can actually make this decision for yourself. As I said before, we'd never let you make an unsafe decision. So say you say, look, you know, I want to wait a few extra days. It might be that your midwife or obstetrician says, look, okay, well, can we monitor your baby's heart rate, you know, tomorrow? Or can we do an additional ultrasound? Um, Because obviously it's our job is is to support you um, and along that way be safe. Um, And and that's, you know, basically, you know, the crux of it at the end of the day. And let's talk about some of the potential interventions during labour that may change your birth plan that are quite common and quite normal interventions that can happen in the blink of it you know it it can completely change the route of how you're giving birth yeah 
So when we look at birth interventions, there's obviously lots of ways you can have a baby, believe it or not. And, um, you know, that can be position wise. Um, obviously, we've got vaginal delivery that's unassisted. So you're able to push out your baby without any necessarily intervention. You've then obviously got an episiotomy that can be performed as part of an intervention. You've then got your instrumental delivery. So that's with your little suction cup or as some people call it, your vacuum, <laughs> which can be used to get your baby out. You've got then the forceps delivery as well. And so that's where I like to call them salad servers. I don't know what your salad servers look like, <laughs> but I guess they sort of resemble that to somewhat degree. Um, and then, of course, you've got your cesarean section. So th there are lots of different ways that you can have a baby. Um, obviously, the decision when it's made to assist you with the delivery is because of some sort of thing that's going on. So whether, you know, one suspects that your baby's a little bit bigger and you need assistance with opening up your perineum with the use of episiotomy, that might be one. Um, it may be that we're worried about the baby's heart rate. And so to speed that up, we recommend an instrumental delivery. Well, there's lots and lots of reasons. And so what's important is that before any of those are performed, you're obviously always informed and you're informed not only what's going to happen, but why it's happening. And that, that's really important as an, a parent to be to understand that. Let's talk about monitoring the baby's heartbeat and labour. Some pregnant people will have in their birth plan that they would prefer that not to be a situation that they find themselves in because it would potentially limit their movement why would some pregnant people need to have their baby's heartbeat monitored continuously versus some people um, having the midwife or the clinician listening intermittently? Yeah, really good question. And we can divide it up into that there was a pregnancy reason that we had to monitor your baby in labour. And so that might be that the mother had a high blood pressure, preeclampsia, diabetes, small baby, that they're, they're very generic or twins. Um Lots of other reasons. But then we also look at, well, what's happening in labor and do we need to monitor it? And so in labor, there can be things such as meconium fluid, slow progress, you know, other things that crop up that go, oh, actually, we're just not comfortable here listening in every so often. Um, and so that's the reasons why we recommend what's called continuous electronic fetal monitoring. Now, you mentioned, you know, sometimes what we have in our head is this picture that, oh, the mother is sort of strapped up to this machine and she's got cords going mm. everywhere. Um, and that can be the case if you're in a hospital with really old machines. Um, but thankfully, these days, um, we've probably had an... Uh, not going to be gender biased here, but probably a female's design, the newer ones where they're cord free, you know, you can keep up your mobility. Yes, they get strapped to your abdomen, but you're free to move around as best you want um, with these machines on. In some hospitals, um, what will also happen is what where the baby's heart rate is monitored is not just in the room, but it's on a big screen outside. So it allows then, you know, everyone who's caring for you to be able to check on your baby without necessarily being in the room too. Um, and that's something that's come around, which is a really good, I guess, progression forward to help that birth room, you know, remain calm, you know, the right people are in there and not necessarily people coming in and out all the time. That's really interesting. I'd never heard of that. Hopefully that will be in your hospital if you're giving birth in the hospital. Um, let's talk about meconium. My mum had it in her third birth and it made it slightly more stressful. Can you explain what meconium is and why that becomes a potential stress and worry for a doctor or a midwife? 
Yeah, so meconium, I mean, it's a bit, a little bit gross to think about it, but the baby's done a poo on the inside. And so what happens is that poo particle has then mixed in with all the amniotic fluid that surrounds your baby. So what happens is you're leaking the fluid that's yellow, and in some cases it can turn into like a dark green colour. Um, I've got a handbag, actually, the colour of people always call it the meconium bag, <laughs> which I thought was quite nice, but now not so. Um, so basically what it means is that at some stage the baby's done a poo, and that can often be because the baby was just under a little bit of stress at some point. So whether it accidentally lent on its umbilical cord or it was in a strange position, it's done a poo. But what it means is that we must then continuously monitor the baby's heartbeat. And that's because we want to make sure that, okay, well, if the baby's had a little bit of a stressful event, what's going on now? And how does this baby then tolerate the labor process, which can induce more stress on the baby? Um, meconium is safe though. A lot of women have gone on to have uncomplicated vaginal deliveries, even in the setting of meconium. But it does mean that we will continuously monitor your baby's heartbeat. It does mean that once the baby's born, what we want to check is that your baby is healthy. And so your midwife and the neonatal doctor will check the baby's sort of color, heart rate, breathing rate, tone, all those sorts of things um, to ensure that your baby is fit and healthy. In some babies, you know, if they're under too much distress, which is what we try and avoid doing, is they might take a little bit of a gulp of that fluid. Um, and so what might happen is your baby needs a little gentle suctioning of its sort of throat region with a small little plastic tube. Um, but that decision will be made once that baby's had that thorough assessment after birth. So a baby will never poo usually before being stressed out in the womb? Usually, yeah, that's correct. It obviously wheezes all the time. That's what the amniotic fluid is. But thankfully, not really. Yeah, no pooing until the end. <laughs> so how would you know if you are labouring at home? How would you know that your baby had swallowed meconium? Yeah, and that's a really good question. And I mean, we don't have the perfect tool yet to sort of, you know, it's like a thermometer, like scan someone's head and go, oh, your baby's done a poo, off we go. Um, yeah. So what we know is it can happen in the labor process because labor can induce stress on the baby. So once someone's waters break, it might be that we discover the meconium, we go, oh, actually, you know, we don't know when it happened, but we know that the baby, you know, is healthy, the heart rate is telling us that it's the baby's not under any stress at the moment and we just have to take it from there it's very rare that you know we do say for instance a planned cesarean section and all of a sudden we discover it without a woman being in labor but you are right it, it can happen babies who are under stress sometimes change in their movement so that's why we do place a lot of emphasis on you know is your baby moving in the same pattern and are you happy with the movements because all of this is sort of interrelated that, you know, it could be that 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 might be a sign potentially, but you are right. You know, there is no perfect tool out there um, and we just have to rely on our assessments um, yeah, going forward. And let's talk about waters breaking, because what are the rules with if your waters break at home or anywhere, you may be at that reservation that you've booked that you didn't think you were going to make it to. What is the rule around water's breaking and how long you have to give birth after the water's breaking because sometimes contractions don't start straight away yeah so you you are correct you know it, it doesn't necessarily mean your baby is out in the next few hours so once someone's waters break there is that 
high chance that their body will then go into the labor process. And that's because the breaking of the waters obviously causes a big gush of fluid. The uterus, you know, contracts a little bit smaller. It encourages the release of prostaglandins and all other substances, helps the baby descend, all those sorts of things. Um, what happens is we always worry about your waters being broken for a prolonged period of time because what we know is once that seal of the balloon is broken, that then allows potentially some organisms to crawl in around the baby and lead to an infection. In the United Kingdom, we um, within the NHS say that if your waters have been broken for 24 hours and you haven't gone into established labour, what will need to happen is we start the contraction process through the use of artificial hormones. And that's a blanket rule. Now, if you know your waters broke and within that 24 hours you started to get a temperature or something else was going on, that will obviously alter that recommendation. Um, but that's sort of the blanket rule. Every scenario is different, but usually it's by 24 hours we start to encourage those contractions to come because what we don't want to do is obviously lead to that higher risk of infection and what that can mean is obviously a baby that needs antibiotics you know an admission to the ward all those sorts of things let's go to the birth now or immediately after the birth because everyone's going to have a different birth and that's what's normal no one's going to have the same birth so immediately after the birth what tends to happen obstetrician runs away no I'm kidding that does not happen that does not happen um okay so I mean it depends on who delivers your baby whether it is a midwife or obstetrician what their job is to do is obviously be there with you deliver the placenta because that's obviously important we don't want to leave that behind and then obviously you know keep an eye on you whether it is that we need to um, perform a perineal repair if there's been a small tear or an episiotomy um, check on you check your uterus has contracted once the um, placenta's out and then of course focus on the baby and do those essential newborn checks which I swear is the most important thing to every parent is what is the weight of the baby. Um, so <laughs> they're, they're sort of those initial time periods. What happens immediately after is, you know, it, it depends on the woman, but obviously some women can feel, you know, just totally exhausted. You know, they want to rest while they're doing that skin to skin. Other women will be so, like, yep, yep, okay, what happens next? What, what am I ready for? And obviously that will always depend on, you know, what type of birth you have, what pain relief you have on board and those sorts of things. We never tend to sort of just get you out of bed immediately after. And that that generally is, you know, the rules for most women. It will be sort of easy mobilization and that will be depending on, you know, whether um, you've just had, you know, generic, if you've used gas, it might be that, yes, you can get out of bed pretty soon after. Um, but that will obviously depend on that. When you go for your first um, void or wee will also depend on what type of pain relief you had. So obviously if you had an epidural, we need to wait until your legs have um, regained their strength again. Um, and that's when you'll be mobilized safely. Um, but yeah, it will always depend on the type of birth you have. That person that's looking after you in that immediate time frame is to ensure that you and your baby are safe um, and that there's no other complications that could be going on. Um, we know that some women, you know, in that short amount of time might start to bleed heavily. They might feel dizzy. They might feel sick. There's lots of things, but our job is to ensure that we manage everything appropriately. And regarding the baby, um, what do you need to make sure the baby does before it's discharged? <laughs> it's a very good question. Um, so obviously, when a baby's born, we do that generic check initially, and that's what we call an APGAS score. And as I sort of mentioned before, it's looking at breathing, heart rate, tone, color, all those sorts of things. 
before you go home, and obviously the length of stay is very, very different for a woman, and that depends on the type of birth. And as we know, some women can go home at six hours um, after delivery. But what's important is we want to, first of all, know that you are confident with your baby. That's number one. You know, you feel comfortable. You've had that bonding time. We're comfortable with you and your baby as well. Um, And we know that your baby will be safe. We want to make sure that, you know, you might obviously not necessarily had your milk coming if you're going home that early, but you've got the grasp of feeding and, you know, a baby latching and those sorts of things. Um, we also want to make sure from a baby point of view that it's been able to maintain its temperature. You know, it's remained a nice pink color. Um, we've completed a newborn check. So it's sort of an array of an examination. We sort of do head to toe. We've done a baby weight as well. And then of course, we've given the baby anything that we were meant to give. And in particular, what I'm referring to here is the vitamin K injection. And can you explain what the vitamin K injection is for everyone? Yeah, so the the vitamin uh, K or vitamin K injection um, that you're offered to um, give your newborn baby um, is is an injection that we do tend to recommend. And the reason being is when a baby's born, its liver is not quite as mature as as a child or an adult liver. What we know the liver does is it produces clotting agent so that helps our blood clot um, and helps you know keep our blood systems healthy Um, the vitamin k injection will help promote that in a newborn um, and so it can be a really useful and safe tool to ensure that that baby's you know going to have the correct sort of clotting system um, going forward millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from noom like evan who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Then it's the, you know, you get discharged and then you're left to your own devices. And that can be quite scary, first time and second time around. Um, have you got any just, not, not, not warnings, but ones that maybe for for people to acknowledge that they don't need to freak out about. I remember that my daughter had blood in her wee, um, in her nappy. And I was like, what is this? 
oh my god what's happening and actually google actually google was quite helpful on that one but (laughs) are there any kind of indicators where you just go any warnings to the parents about what to expect in those first couple of days for the baby or you Yeah, so I think if we look at the baby first, I mean, I'm not the baby expert and I'm not the midwife expert either, but I guess what I've become attuned to in women sort of asking me and whatnot is definitely the little bit of bleeding that girls can have and that's really normal. That's obviously from their genitalia area. It's quite common to have that little bit of discharge. Babies can be a little bit irritable as well and that's obviously, you know, a crying baby isn't necessarily a sick baby. It's just, a, you know, a baby becoming adjusted to um, life on the planet um, and feeding-wise. Um, obviously, there's, you know, those really scary sort of clinical symptoms that you're looking for as well and that's obviously, you know, looking at a baby's temperature, you know, rashes, all those sorts of, you know, bizarre things that can happen. But generally from a baby perspective, you know, it, it's hard. There can be, you know, array of things that are very, very normal. I think if you're ever worried at all, remember that there's so many people you can call. I mean, I'm glad to hear that you had a good experience with Google, but sometimes Google might not necessarily, you know, give you the right advice. In that initial newborn phase, the midwives are super helpful. So, you know, going to A&E might not necessarily be the right thing to do. And I'd actually say, you know, just call your local assessment unit um, in within your maternity department because the midwives are really, really useful and have a wealth of knowledge. And they'll be able to tell you, oh, is this normal? Is this not? Um, from a mum perspective, so that's a really interesting one. And uh, once again, it's obviously dependent on the type of birth you had um, and how long you need to stay in hospital. A really common thing that symptom women have is obviously bleeding after a baby and it's what we call lockia. And obviously following a delivery, you know, what we see is the amount of vaginal loss you have just goes down and down and down each day. Obviously, if you pass, you know, lots of heavy clots or you notice that the bleeding increased, that's something to be aware of. If you developed a temperature, if you suddenly found you couldn't go to the toilet and do a wee, that's also something that can be common. And then obviously any abnormal pain as well. Um, That's obviously sort of symptoms to sort of highlight for. Um, I mean, I could write a whole list. We could do a whole nother series on postnatal. But (laughs) But that that was one thing that actually, what do they call them? The after pains? Um, The after pains, Really nice thing to talk about. Yes. and it was the uter- it's the uterus shrinking, contracting to kind of try and go back to a normal size yeah. pre-baby. And it can be super painful. And no one told me about that. <laughs> That's right. And it, it can, what you can find is after each child you have, it can, the pains can get stronger. Yeah. It's what we call the involution of the uterus. It sort of involutes down. And in particular, things such as breastfeeding can really drive that. Um, another symptom we didn't probably mention and is worth talking about is the baby blues. Um, and that's, you know, something that we know can happen to a lot of women. In particular, it's day three that we sort of highlight. And I don't know if that's sort of the time where you've had a bit of sleep and you're like, oh, take a breath. I, I don't I don't know. But basically what they've also connected it to is the um, rapid decrease in estrogen that's going in your body. Um, and that that then causes, you know, you can to be possibly a little bit more emotional or irritable than usual. You know, your coping mechanisms are, you know, less strong than what they were. Um, but this is something that should resolve uh, within a few days. We'll cover more about postnatal in further episodes, but let's go back to the placenta delivery because it's something that you kind of 
don't think about because I guess you'll hopefully, fingers crossed, have your new baby in your arms, skin to skin, and you're being able to kind of start that love bubble and, and it's been positive, the birth. But yes, there's a placenta, a big old placenta that needs to be birthed after. Is there a certain time limit that you want that placenta out? And can we talk about the injection that may be offered to a mother to help get it out? Yeah, so uh, the placenta, so it's obviously the thing that's been feeding the baby. It's got lots and lots of vessels within it. And so what we want is that uterus following delivery of your baby to sort of contract and constrict its vessels and then the the placenta sort of shears off its wall and then gets delivered. Um, Now, placentas, we like to be delivered 30 to 60 minutes after the baby's out. In some women, no matter what, how much time you leave it, it never comes out by itself. And that's because it can be really adherent or be stuck within your womb for some reason. Um, and that's why um, it, the reason we sort of put that time frame is if the placenta is still there, you can really bleed easily. And that's because sort of from the edges of the placenta, there's obviously all that blood flow going um, and it, it can result in a hemorrhage. The injection we recommend is part of what we call active third stage. Um, and so it's, um, once again, it's sort of an artificial um, version of one of our hormones. Um, so what we use routinely is syntocinon or a combination of syntocinon and another medication. And that name is called Sintometrin. And it's a, a really straightforward injection that goes into the muscle of your leg um, following the delivery of your baby. And what it helps do is constrict um, the uterus so that placenta is encouraged to deliver um, on its own accord. It's really, really effective. And what they've shown is by using Sintometrin, we really reduce the rates of um, postpartum hemorrhage and the need for a woman to be on iron supplements for anemia associated with blood loss. Um, but obviously, once again, you have a choice of whether or not you want that injection. And so if you do your own reading and you would prefer to do what's called physiological third stage, where we sort of wait for a placenta to naturally come, then that is obviously your choice. Um, and that's something that you know you would be able to discuss further with your midwife or obstetrician. Is there any um, indication of where the placenta is placed, anterior or posterior, whether it's easier to come out or does it not matter? No, it doesn't necessarily matter, but a very good question. Um, when you, when, once your placenta's out, um, you'll always be asked if you wanted to have a look at it as well. So that's something. You can always take a photo or have a look at it yourself. Um, and actually, you're given the choice of whether or not you want to take it home. And the reason some women do want to take it home is so they can make it into capsules and all those sorts of things um, that we do these days or plant by a rose bush. Um, but there's lots of reasons why uh, people decide to keep their placentas. Jess, I, w- I was talking about this with my mates. Um, it's not necessarily that common from what I understand for you to get a debrief on your birth. Now, some people may have lots and lots of complications. They may end up with having an emergency C-section. But can you, as the pregnant person or the birth partner, request... uh, uh, Can you request um, a debrief to go over why certain things happen because at the time maybe it can be a complete blur but is that something that you have the right as a patient to do 
Oh, definitely. I would strongly recommend if you've had um, uh, an unexpected outcome or a complicated delivery, where even if it, your birth plan sort of deviate a little bit off your path and you wanted someone to sit down and go through it all, that you request a debrief. It's a really important thing, I think, especially not only to help you and your respective birth partner understand the decisions made, but also it's really important for next pregnancy um, because what it can do is obviously relieve a lot of anxiety that you might keep bottled up otherwise um, and it also helps you sort of plan you know the next baby um, it's really interesting I within the NHS I do debriefs every week and actually the scope of when a woman requests it, it can be super you know simple and actually you know what she just had one little question no one you know answered and I'm like oh yep done you know move on um, or it can be something really complicated where you go through the notes even not necessarily having been involved in the birth, but you sort of give that sort of third eye view on things. I've even done them for women who have birthed at different hospitals and actually they said, look, can you just go through my notes and at least explain what happened from a, you know, a stranger point of view? And I think you know, that's what it's about is do what you feel is right because if you, you're not quite sure what happened, there are lots of benefits in having that debrief session. Um, definitely by all means request one if that's what you want. Yeah. Um, also another thing to say, and I don't know if we've talked about this and we'll, um, but if you are not happy with the relationship you're having with your midwife, and I don't know whether it's the same with an obstetrician, um, you can request, however awkward it may feel to change midwife, can't you? Yeah, I mean, if you think about it, if you're a dentist, you're not happy with your dentist, you can change your dentist. You know, yeah. I, I think the same thing applies. And I think what in particular is really important with pregnancy, and I think it's becoming more and more paramount um, because a lot of um, maternity care now is quite public and, you know, the outcomes that we get. Um, and it's really important that you feel supported throughout your pregnancy. We would never take offence if someone said, look, you know, actually what, I, I feel like I, I just, you know, would like to see another individual. It, it's what you want. It's a very individual um, decision. You are also entitled to, you know, change hospitals if that's what you want as well. Um, and once again, it's do what you feel is right for you um, because, you know, it's important that, you know, you feel that support all the way throughout your pregnancy, delivery and after your baby um, because that's obviously going to help ensure that we get great outcomes for both you, you know, and your family. Um, Jess, before the baby is born, what would be your your go-to, you're ready to go to hospital, is it three contractions in 10 minutes for over an hour? Is that the, is that the, the thing, that the, the formula that people should remember in their head? That is the million dollar question. I think if it was me, I'd be such a pansy, I'd be in their way earlier than that. But anyway, and then sent away, we won't Jess. go into my own personal. <laughs> uh, what, what, what brings you into hospital? Look... So what we want you to be is in active labor. And so what active labor generally refers to is a contraction every three to four minutes. You know, we're seeing cervical changes. Um, but once again, if you're in what we call latent phase of labor, where, you know, things are a little bit more spaced out, but you're feeling uncomfortable or you just want to get checked, you know, you shouldn't feel like you can't come in. 
it may be that your maternity assessment unit says, look, you know, you're still in, you know, late in phase labor. This could go on for, you know, a certain number of hours or day, days. I won't say that to scare people, but, you know, it can in some cases. Um, but they might say, look, go for a walk around the hospital, you know, go outside for a bit, come back in a few hours. Or they might say, look, just sit over in that chair. Let's see if things establish. But, you know, you would never be denied that checkup. Um, and especially if it's your first baby, it can be really, you know, worrying. It's like, oh God, hang on, they're not, you know, every three minutes, you know, it's not as simple as a formula, but the aim is that you come in sort of when it's that active stage of labour. This is one that I'm having. I am very aware of when I'm having Braxton Hicks. However, my Braxton Hicks have become slightly more intense in the last few days where it kind of penetrates down to my pelvis. Now, I've always felt like you know, my association with early labour has been more back pain, period pain, all of that. And it's a really interesting sensation where, you know, it's a hardened belly and this pushing down, which I'm kind of thinking, fingers crossed, that's quite good news because it means maybe even if it's practice contractions. Is this normal to happen at this stage? Do Braxton Hicks increase in like intensity? So Braxton Hicks in some women can happen really early. You know, some women report them from 30 weeks. And what they say is they're fake labour pains. You know, it's the body preparing. They don't have the power to predict when you're going to go into labour. But the fact that they're changing a lot, you know, they're becoming a little bit more stronger um, and different. It might be that actually that's a sign that, you know, things are changing within your body. And this could be, you know, that labour is around the corner. Um, it's good that they're happening because, you know, they obviously, you know, alert you. You might not necessarily jump on a plane if you're, well, you wouldn't be at 38 weeks anyway, but a train, I don't know. <laughs> but, but once again, as I said, they're not a very powerful predictor tool, but a good sign. We've got a voice message for you. And I think this is a really important question because I don't think people maybe think about this or if they are thinking about it, I understand why she's freaking out. Um, this is a question from Daisy. Okay, so not so much of a question, but more of some reassurance. What does it feel like to go toilet after giving birth? I'm talking number one and number two. Genuinely the biggest fear of the whole labour thing. I just can't imagine going toilet afterwards. Thanks. Jess, tell us about the situation with the number one and the number two. Yeah, I think Daisy's got a, it's a really good question to ask, you know, what's, what's life going to be like on the other side? If we start off with, uh, obviously, first the voiding or the weeing, um, if you do have a vaginal birth, it can sting a little up with that first wee. Um, and that's because there sometimes can be a little bit of trauma around the area. You know, it can be a little bit of a graze, not necessarily requiring sutures, or you have suture material um, around or near your urethra, um, that first wee, though, generally will sting. And what we often say um, is, you know, potentially maybe just wee in the shower for the first one because what you'll have is you'll have that running water effect and it might feel a little bit less stinging. Um, uh, However... Weeing going forward, it, it should go back to normal. Some women do suffer from a little bit of incontinence in those first few weeks, and that can be, you know, when they cough, they accidentally wee themselves a little bit, or it, it can be, you know, a little bit of a weak pelvic floor. But with time, with your squeezy app, um, those sorts of things should resolve. From uh, number two or a pooing um, perspective, once again, it depends on the type of delivery you had. Now, when you have a vaginal delivery, 
that's well and truly away from your your um, anal area. Um, some women, unfortunately, suffer from a, a large tear that might extend and involve the muscles around your bottom. And so their recovery um, from a number two perspective will be a little bit longer. Um, however, in an uncomplicated vaginal delivery, um, you should be able to go for a number two quite easily. If you've had a, a cesarean section, whether it's planned or emergency, Sometimes we give you quite strong pain relief medication that can make you a little bit more constipated. And so you might be on something that helps soften your stools or allows you to um, go to the toilet without feeling constipated as well. But that also generally should return to normal. Yeah, I suggest fiber gel. That's what my mother-in-law gave me and it worked a treat. Good to hear. And wasn't actually <laughs> as scary as it was meant to be. I, I think everyone everyone fears their first one. That's what I've heard. Everyone's sort of like, uh, and actually what I always say is, some t- you know, it shouldn't keep you in hospital to need to go to the toilet that first time because sometimes you just need your own toilet. You know, you don't want to be in that shared toilet on the ward going for the first time. Um, and so don't stress, it will come. And obviously things like fiber gel and other medications are out there to help. And keep your mouth open and make that lion's breath like you did when you were giving birth. <laughs> so thank you, Jess McMicking, for being here for week 40. No problem. I hope I don't see you for week 41, <laughs> but I probably will. It's been wonderful to get to week 40, a really exciting time. I don't know how many babies are born on their due date. I don't think it's a very high percentage, um, but those who haven't had their baby yet, don't, don't worry, you know, hold on, your baby's not far away. Thanks so much. And sending love to everybody who is now in the waiting game. Just hold on. Don't stress out. Book a Manny Petty. <laughs> so that's the end of Is It Normal? The Pregnancy Podcast. We got to week 40. I don't want to see any of you at week 41 or 42. And I think we won't want to even talk about giving birth if we haven't by that point. We'll be so sick of it. But I thank you for listening to this I hope this podcast has helped you feel confident uh, or a little bit more confident or a bit little bit less scared about the processes through pregnancy all those questions that you may have googled and found a ton of answers for I hope that our experts that we've had on this podcast have helped strengthen your choices helped you make informed decisions and just feel maybe a bit more relaxed around your pregnancy and giving birth it's been such a pleasure to chat to these people you know I wish I had had something like this with my first birth and pregnancy I hope that this community of voices has helped you in some aspect. Um, I don't want to leave it there because I think that there is a lot to be said for the postnatal period. So we will be having some bonus episodes which will cover different parts of that fourth trimester, they like to call it, that beginning of you connecting with your baby and all the bits that come with it that I never knew about uh, that were maybe a little trickier for me, but you may find really easy. That's it. Everything is normal because everyone's different. And I just thank you so, so much for listening to this. And I wish you all the best with your births and your babies. And we will hopefully see you again with the bonus episodes to help just keep on to help keep um to keep helping you on this journey of parenthood um thank you for joining us lots of love it's been an absolute pleasure and thank you to all of our collaborators and experts that have given us their time and their expertise and all of you who have given us voice notes emails text messages um we're all in it together and it definitely takes a village lots of love
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com